0: Wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson.
1: Welcome. You can connect with us through our social media links and find many other Bleeding Daylight episodes at bleedingdaylight.net. Today's guest will remind us that small acts of kindness can make a huge impact. I'll introduce you in a moment please think about who else would benefit from hearing this episode and let them know where to find bleeding daylight. Many of us have faced pivotal moments in life where our decisions can take us down different paths with vastly different outcomes. For Matt Sharp, that moment came while he was handcuffed in the back of a police car at the age of 19, and we'll talk more about that decision later. Matt is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt who has travelled the world, raised an amazing family, and he took his last $100 to build a multi-million dollar business. He's an entrepreneur, author, and keynote speaker, and I'm so pleased that he is joining us today on Bleeding Daylight. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thanks for having me here. It's great to be here today. With an introduction like that, we might be forgiven for thinking that life has been going pretty smoothly for you, but I know that that's not always the case. Take us way back to your upbringing. What was life like in your early years? You know, that, thanks for asking,
0: and and I think you know one of the things that I'll preface with is um, go, going on podcasts. You know, I've got my my bio that I send to the host, and it, it's the it's all of the highlights, right? All of the great things to give me credibility. But no, life life's been a struggle. I think just for everybody, right? Everybody faces challenges, ups and downs. We all just went through a. a a crazy time with covid so no i'm happy to talk about that things that i remember core memories from my upbringing is i lived in new jersey northern new jersey on the east coast here of the u.s until i was 10. i got in trouble a lot i got bullied a lot didn't really fit in to you know a lot of different friend groups or anything like that so I was kind of an outcast i was real brilliant though i was super smart so i was I, i would excel in school they didn't keep me busy, so I went and got in trouble. I got bullied a lot too. So I was just really scared of the world. That was one thing that I remember, just always, you know, fearful to go out there and experience the things that that I experienced. So we moved out to Colorado from New Jersey. Looking back, what a great decision. A lot of the kids that I ran around with back in the elementary years in New Jersey, they're either dead in prison or they just disappeared. Uh, It it was a good move that my family made, and my exposure to business and entrepreneurship was at 10 years old. I asked my parents for $200 to buy a boombox, a big radio CD player. They said, no, you have to find a way to make your own money. Sorry. and All I knew how to do at that point was cut grass, right, mow mow lawns. I cut my, my family's grass. They paid me a couple dollars a week, so I just walked up and down the street and learned about business, knocked on doors, and mowed lawns. Growing up, though, business became for me uh, a real deep sense of security, certainty and validation. That was the first time in my life that I really felt validated and appreciated and saw that I brought some kind of value to the world. I would also say growing up, there was no conversation of or an exposure of faith or Jesus or anything like that in my early years. So that did not happen in my family of origin. And that that's a real quick flyover of my childhood.
1: You mentioned that you were bullied as a kid. You didn't feel that you fit in. And of course, those early years, we just want to be part of the group. We don't want to feel like we stand out. And I know that led you down some pretty dark paths, didn't it?
0: You know, it did. Yeah, I think, you know, any any human, right? That's That's one of our basic needs on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We need food and shelter and security, but then just that sense of belonging right uh to to a group and yeah i didn't feel that i didn't have that so you know my confidence was wrecked from a very early age you you go out and i mean i was i was a goofy looking kid buck teeth headgear very easy target not confident real real skinny real easy to pick on so you you have enough of these experiences in the world and then you start to conclude things about the world right like everybody's out to get you people deep down are are cruel you know not loving th- things like that so that will just continue to manifest itself into into later years same same programming but but different things that that'll grab hold of you
1: and so you turn to uh, abusing different substances there were, was alcohol there was drugs yeah how did you slide into that
0: never really felt that I fit in. Business was my thing. So when I got into that space, I was kind of a loner. I just went and I worked and I worked hard and I made money. But obviously, as you're you know getting into middle school, high school, early college years, you, you need to find a, a peer group to belong to. And that peer group that, that I, I found some relationship with, yeah, their Friday, Saturday nights were drinking and drugging you know some other experiences with other like work colleagues cuz i ended up then working just hourly jobs at you know local restaurants and things like that so just a lot of those kids like to party and within that that partying you quote unquote right i'm doing air quotes now uh, you make friends and those friends are there for you but they're they're there to party with you and that's what i did
1: so was it a case of using the alcohol and drugs to numb the pain, or to feel that you fit in with this group of people who are also doing these things. Or do you think it was a combination of both?
0: I would say absolutely. Yeah, it was absolutely both. You know that that acceptance and validation happens because you're doing the drinking. If you're not going out doing the drinking and the partying, then you're not part of that group, and then you're not accepted, and then that brings up, you know. So so it's a cycle, and um, I don't know if there was one more than the other again like when you when you get into that that's now another idol it's another thing that you find some certainty and security in and um, obviously it chemically changes your 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 body and you just do stupid things <laughs> when when you're when you're doing that.
1: We've kept listeners in suspense for perhaps long enough because I mentioned in the introduction that there was some incident in the back of a police car while you're handcuffed. Tell me how you got into that situation in the first place.
0: I will. Can I back up? Because I think that that moment in the police car was a super pivotal moment in my faith journey. But just kind of leading up to that to kind of lay some groundwork and and perspective is my first exposure that I remember to any conversation about God, about Christianity, about Jesus was early high school. Had a couple of friends and they were, you know, I called them the Bible thumping twins. It was twin brothers. They were all about Jesus. It was just, it was their life. It was everything. They invite me to Bible study and I didn't really know what this was about. I just, I heard uh, rumors, right? That, that Christians are very judgmental and, 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 you know, things like that. So I get invited to a Bible study and I go in there and they, they look at me, they're like, who's this guy over here? And they had this icebreaker question and the icebreaker question. And remember I'm what 14, ninth grade in high school. They say to, to the new kids there in front of everybody, they bring them up in front of the room and they say, are you a buncher or a folder? And, and I looked back, and I said, <laughs> what, are, what are you? And you're laughing because you get it, right? So you know what they're asking. The big questions of life. The big questions of life. I'm standing there, I go, look, you, you guys are a little odd, a little different. Um, I know I am too. And I just, I'm not comfortable answering that. So I didn't answer anything. And they said, well, you know, then you can't, then you can't be here with us tonight. I said, what? I go this is not a group I want to be a part of. You think of the game of American football, right? You start at a particular place on the field and your goal is to drive down the field play by play, experience by experience. And you know, my my faith journey, I just compare it to that analogy is I started really far down the field, no exposure. Got into drugs and alcohol. Then I start having these negative experiences with people who are Christian. They're judging me. They're they're not accepting me. And it's just continuing to to build this pattern and belief that that I don't belong. That I'm not accepted. And I definitely don't want to hang out with with you Christians. As I'm drugging and drinking in college, another core memory of that is walking home drunk every Friday night. And this guy across the dorm halls having a Bible study, sitting there, reading the Bible, singing, worship music. And not once did he invite me in to be part of the Bible study. He waited for me to walk by. He'd stop. He'd call out my name at the door and say, oh, are you drunk again tonight? And very judgmental. And uh, again, never, never, never showed the compassion of Jesus to me or anything like that. Just judged me. So I said, you know, I'm going to go out and do drinking and drugs those experiences really made me decide and determine by about 19 that I don't want to have anything to do with with Christians. They're they're judgmental. They think they're perfect and they're not. They want to point out everybody else's faults and they don't want to admit their own. So screw you guys, <laughs> was what I said. And, and I share that backstory because this evening in the police car, uh, what happened was it was New Year's Eve from 2000 to 2001. We were doing the typical weekend of Friday afternoon start drinking and you you run that through all the way to Sunday morning house party wraps up I'm severely intoxicated and the the people in the house are like hey everybody needs to leave the house so they're pushing everybody out of the house and I said hey I need to get home so I'm standing out it's 130 in the morning January Colorado right United States very cold and I I know the general direction of where my house is located and I said oh if I just walk straight down this street, I know that this street pops out on the other main thoroughfare. So I just start walking and I'm freezing. And that's all I remember. I'm freezing and I'm walking. And that street does not go straight through to the street that I, I knew it ended at. It actually stops in front of the house. And then the street kind of mousetraps through this, this neighborhood. And I approach this fence. It's maybe three feet high. And I start trying to climb this fence. And I'm struggling. I'm fighting with this fence. And a car pulls up behind me. And I I kind of see that the headlights in my peripheral, I hear a door open and then I hear the door close and a gentleman comes up from behind me. He grabs me by the collar of my shirt and my my belt on my pants. And he spins me around and slams me into a, a brown Ford Astro van with his wife in the front seat. And I'm super confused. And then he says, Hey, Fort Collins police don't move. said. put your hands behind your back. And he handcuffs me. And I'm still confused because it's not a police car. Like his wife's in the front seat. She's embarrassed and frustrated. And there's two babies in the back seat and I'm severely intoxicated. They bring a marked police car, throw me into the back of that police car. And this is where a really memorable, really pivotal experience happens for me. Rodney is this police officer. He did not quote the Bible. He didn't give me a Bible verse. He didn't tell me about Jesus. He just showed up as himself and he told me a couple of things. He said, listen, son, it's real busy tonight. This computer screen in my car is filled with a lot of drunk people. And he said, if you're not that drunk that you can tell me how to get back to your house, then I'll drive you back to your house. Uh, He said, but I just want to let you know, because of what you are are doing right now. Like this, these homeowners had called the cops on you. They saw you walking down the street. I have the authority, the power, the control to punish you, to judge you, to put you in jail, to take you to the drunk tank and to make your life pretty miserable. But I don't want to do that. He said, you've been respectful. You seem like a nice guy. How do you get to your house? So I told him and he drove me home and uh, takes me out of the police car walks me up to the front door, unhandcuffs me. Again, didn't quote a Bible verse. I don't know if he was a Christian. I don't know his name. I really just remember it was a male police officer from the city that, I, that I'm going to college in. And he unhandcuffs me, takes me to the door, and he says, Hey, I think there's people out there that, that love you and that would not want to see something bad happen to you. And I hope next time I run into you, that you're making better choices in life. There's a better way to do life I just hope you make better choices. It was something to that degree. And then he lets me go and I go home. I get I get really sick. I wake up the next day. And that experience, I, I don't know why, Rodney. It was just G- Jesus was there in that experience. He had the complete power, authority, and control to judge me and punish me, just like all these other people that, that I was perceiving was doing this to me. They were judging me. They were condemning me. And this guy just, just loved on me, just right where I was at and he took care of me and and he didn't you know he didn't try to save me per se for the for the kingdom of god he just loved on me and i woke up the next day and that experience really lifted the scales off of my eyes to all of the other people that were in in the faith standpoint that were also loving on me that were also there for me no matter what that weren't pushing anything on me that were just meeting me where i was at and saying hey if you ever need to have a conversation you want to talk more about this this Jesus guy just give me a call all i remembered because of all that painful upbringing were the negative moments so i wake up the next day and and i would say rodney i was exploring i was exploring faith i was talking to people they were you know sitting down having coffees with me and i just i just couldn't get over the negative experiences but that police officer you know he drives me down the football field just a little bit more and then those next couple of weeks after, I, I reached out to these people that that were there for me, and they drove me down the field just a little bit more, a little bit more, had to make up a lot of ground. And then it was, let's see, January yeah, January 14th, uh, 2001, I gave my life to Christ.
1: It's an interesting journey to get there, and there's a couple of things there that I'd like to explore. Firstly, those people that you had encountered in the past who weren't showing the love of Christ to you at all, they were showing judgment. And I guess we can easily do that. If we decide, no, we're in the right and everyone else is in the wrong, then we're going to show judgment. But the other thing is, I think there are some very well-meaning Christians who would love to reach out to people, but if they saw someone who's drinking and taking drugs and and just carrying on with that kind of life, they might think, oh, they wouldn't be interested. And yet I suspect, by the way that you're talking, that if in that moment, when you were coming home drunk from parties and you were passing by that guy's door who's running the Bible study, if he had actually dared to ask you, you might have even considered it.
0: Absolutely. And it was it was really interesting because I ran into him not too long ago, and we can share that story later. It was really funny. But yeah, no, he never said, Hey, Matt, come in. Do you want to, you know, you want to grab the, I think he was always eating like Chipotle or something. never said, Hey, you want to come in for a Chipotle? He just said, Oh, are you drunk again? That was his question. Hey, Matt, are you drunk again? I can smell you at the door. It was almost a challenge to get more drunk so he could smell me more, right? (laughs) Coming home, I'm competitive. (laughs) And uh, yeah, but never, never invited me. Never. And you know, not, He's, he's 19, he's figuring things out. He has a story too. So I don't sit here and condemn him or judge him or, or be upset. It's just, it just is what it is. That was an imprint in, in my life and my story. But yeah, it's, um, it, it shouldn't be that complicated. And I think we make it overcomplicated sometimes. Just love on people, understand they have a story, whether they seem pretty buttoned up or they're, you know, drunk in a ditch in a gutter somewhere, everybody has a story. All humans have those those same needs at the end of the day, and just just love on people, and ask them real open ended questions. Um, I remember one of my friends one one night after you know after this was going on said, "Hey, are you okay? Why why are you doing this? Um, you know, obviously you're you're doing this every every weekend, but you're brilliant. You're also going to school and working and and running you know running a business, and you're crushing it in that. So what's this what's this 180 you're taking for 48 hours every week?
1: And it's interesting too, you would have come to faith at that point where you had some of those questions answered in that time between New Year's Day that didn't go so well for you through to the 14th when you say, I need to make a decision that will radically alter the direction of my life. And you enter into this new faith in Jesus. And yet Mm -hmm. at the same time, this has not been part of your lifestyle. This hasn't been part of your upbringing. I guess sometimes for those of us who have been brought up in the church, we at least know where we're going to go. If we make that decision, we've got some of the backstory. How was it for you in trying to fill in all those blanks to understand this faith that you'd just thrown your lot in with?
0: You know it's interesting because my you know my kids Emily and I we look at our kids and we obviously have exposed that them to that since they were little kiddos and you know at, at six seven eight you know they they both said yes I want to give I want to give my life to Christ and I'm going to get baptized and all of those things and that's amazing it's like okay they need to take that journey right with with us guiding them through that time that they're teenagers and they really get into their formidable years and they and then they really believe in that right it's one thing for a, for a a seven-year-old to say it, it's seven years old. But then there's really that that exploration where they where they really commit to that. But I didn't have that. So looking back, I didn't, and I didn't realize at the time. I just said, "Hey, I'm 19, Second Corinthians five seventeen. Anybody in Christ is a new creation. Old has gone, new has come. So there was that that transformative moment for me. And I didn't really think of like here's the ground I need to make up or ground I need to cover. I just started jumping in and digging in. And and I don't think going back that I wish i would have had it different i wouldn't trade or exchange that story because i think my story really helps and relates to people i mean jesus went out and was looking for and searching for and healing and and saving the the lost and the sick so i appreciate my story and i'm very thankful for it
1: what about the friends that you'd been out drinking with most weekends what did they think of this change in your direction?
0: You know, it's really funny because, you know, the, the plans for the next weekend were, you know, it's like, what am, what am I going to do? Because I, I know I'm not supposed to be doing this, right? I have this this whole new life and I didn't change my, my friend group. So the people that I was running around with, they were still doing the same things. And I would share too, like it, for me, the drugs stopped immediately. The minute I gave my life to Christ, didn't touch a drug again. The drinking didn't though, you know, I would, I would go out and try to justify, well, you know, I'm not going to go have 15 drinks and then fall down in the street. I'm going to go have six. Right, so that's that's where that started. That was the maturity level I was I was at. It was just this interesting journey of still being with friend groups, so, uh, and some of my friends were other Christians, too. Believe it or not, and we were out just just going through this journey together. That was the that was the true reality of it. Um, yeah, never touched a drug again, and you know the drinking thing. Just it just I would say it tapered off through the end of college. I went over to Spain for a semester, so. Uh, one year later, I spent my spring semester of uh, 2002 over in Spain. That was a really great time for me to step away from everything and everybody that I knew here in the States and really just be on my own and, you know, figure out my faith, just figure out who I was as a man. So that was a really great time. But that time from 14th of January 01 to, you know, beginning of January 02, it, it was just an It was an interesting time of just being in this back
1: and forth space. Tell me about that time in Spain, because I know that that's left a a huge imprint on your life.
0: I started studying Spanish in middle and high school, and then I did some elementary tutoring in high school, and ended up doing translating for Spanish-speaking families. There was a big population of them there at the school. Spanish just came easy to me, so I said, "You know, I'm going to go to CSU College, uh, Colorado State. Everybody's going to college. That's just what you do. I'm going to minor in Spanish, and you know, we'll see what happens with the rest." And uh, Spanish professor, I have to give a huge shout out to her. Her name's uh, Ma- Maria Del Mar she comes up to me at the end of spanish culture class every day she'd always correct my papers she's like here's all the red marks on your papers you know you need to say this not that she goes well, you need to go to spain you need to check out my beautiful country and here's what she says to me there's beautiful women and sangria and partying <laughs> she she didn't say like hey there's history culture and and you're going to learn the language more she goes ah you'll learn the language but you need to go check out spain so i just sign up on a whim And I go over there for five months. I live with a family, but for me, it was, it was an escape. So in, in one aspect, it was an escape. I was very tied down to, business mat. I was working with a college painting company, had never really flown the nest or left the nest per se from family of origin. They were close by. I was with them a lot. So I just I had this bubble of experiences here. And um, I thought that was the only world that existed. So when I go over there, uh, A, I fell in love with the country, the people, the language, host family I stayed with was amazing. It was interesting because my my faith was tested there. They're very, uh, very Roman Catholic over there, so they would ask you, "Are you Catholic?" I said, "No." They go, "What are you Jewish? Or are you Muslim?" I said, "No, I'm Christian." They go, oh, "So you're Catholic?" I said, "No, I'm Christian." They go, oh, "So you're Protestant?" So just, just interesting dynamic and conversations over there. But it was a great time to be alone and have space to find myself as just a man, as as a student, and as a new believer.
1: And then, when did family begin for you? When did you meet the love of your life and mm-hmm. decide this is going to be part of my life going forward?
0: I have this amazing experience. The spring semester of '02, uh, I come back that summer, turned 21, and then in September of 2022, uh, we were out salsa dancing at a at a local bar in the basement of a bar. Emily, my my now wife, she got drug there by her friend who liked to go salsa dancing. So, you know, I learned how to dance in Spain. I go out, Emily's there, doesn't want to be there. And her roommate who I knew introduces us. And for me, it was love at first sight. She goes, she goes, Hey, I'm Emily. I said, Hey, I'm Matt. I think I'm going to marry you one day is what I'm thinking. And then she was being bothered by this group of guys They're asking her to dance and she didn't dance. She didn't want to dance. And she goes, Hey, will you be my fake boyfriend for tonight? I'm like, I'll be your real boyfriend forever. <laughs> so we, we meet and, and she didn't, she didn't fall in love right away. You know, uh, we, we leave that engagement that, that evening. And she goes, Hey, next time I see you, I just want to ask you one thing. She knew I was into her. She says, don't forget my name. The next time I see you, that was just a thing for her. Right. She goes, just, just please remember my name. I said, okay, Emily, I'll, I'll see you soon. Run into her a month later. And you know what, you know what happens? I totally forget her name. She said, I'm I'm writing this guy off at, at that point. And uh, we end up having a bunch of classes together next semester. Uh, we were doing an activity and then going back to our seats. And I'm walking back to my chair. I have my coat on the back of the chair. and She's sitting in it. And I go, hey, Emily. <laughs> and she goes, oh, hey, Matt. And then we just hit it off from there. And that's where, where things started.
1: So a bit of a shaky start, but uh, you came yeah. through in the end. I I came through in the end. Yeah, no, it
0: was uh, it was it was interesting. You know, for her though, um, she had just gotten out of a out of a relationship that didn't end well, and um, she you know had a very different upbringing. She grew up in a Christian home, um, was really looking for a solid Christian man, and she said, "Hey, the next person I get into a relationship with, it's because I'm going to be interested in getting married. It's not to go party. It's not to go have fun. It's not to go have arm candy boyfriend. Something like that, right? It's like this is going to be my husband." And then she meets me, learns a little bit of my story. She's like, who's this guy who used to party a lot, says he found Jesus, went to Spain. You know, now he's at the basement of a bar dancing, right? So she's real gun-shy, totally understandable. Yet we just, we kind of came from two different backgrounds, two different worlds, and
1: just slowly started our our life together. We'd love to hear the fairy tale story that someone who has a difficult upbringing or a difficult life, comes to faith and then suddenly everything's wonderful. And we'd love to say that that's what happened for you, but things didn't always go well. You ended up in a a job that you hated and and things Mm -hmm. didn't go well. Tell us a little of that experience. I
0: worked with a college painting company in college and I made a bunch of money over four years in college, like 20, 30 times more than any College kid makes waiting tables, delivering pizza, whatever, whatever you do. But I spent three times what I made. So I graduate 2003, Emily in 2004, we get married the summer of 04 and I bought a house when I shouldn't have. And the mortgage loan officer, he was doing like, he was doing a lot of business. Again, I'm very. Uh, idolizing of money and wanting to become a millionaire because I want to prove something to the world and screw the world. That was kind of my attitude, still very upset and angry. So I jump into the mortgage business thinking that's going to be this real sexy, glamorous, money-making business. And I absolutely hate it. I'm working at a bank March of 2005. The new bank president That that had just come in that week. I hadn't met him yet, but he calls me into his office and he's, you know, nice suit, nice tie, big banker's desk. And I said, Hey, I'm Matt. Nice to meet you. I stick my hand out to, to shake his hand. And he says, you know, go get all your, your stuff. He said another word. And he said, go put it in a box. And I said, what? He goes, you're fired. Get out of the bank. Like, get out of here. And then he said, maybe you should go do that painting thing. You know, again, I hate the job. It was the best worst day of my life looking back. But again, just very judgmental, very condescending. You're not good enough. Go get your stuff. Get the heck out. Go be a dirty painter is, is effectively what he said and what I heard. So I'm standing in the parking lot of this bank with all of my belongings, professional belongings in a box. And I just remember saying, I'm never going to work for somebody again. Definitely not somebody like that. And I'm going to go to this, this business thing. You know, I've been doing this since I was a kid and we literally had a hundred dollars left to spare. And all I knew how to do was knock on doors and generate paint jobs. So we launched M E painting. That was my first official business. Right. And, um, yeah, took, took a hundred dollars, went to the bank. And uh, that was after I came home, I got home about 1 PM and Emily says, Hey, you're home kind of early today. Did you get a, did you get a long lunch? I said, yeah, it's a really long lunch, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like a not coming back after lunch. And she said, you know what? I love you. I believe in you. You've got this, like went out and we did about a half million dollars worth of business our, our first year. But I'll tell you what, I was angry, you know, cause the whole, the whole business story, right. When I speak to the business world, Oh, went from nothing, rags to riches, work hard, but you know, all, all this stuff. It's great. It's true. I did. I worked my butt off. I was so angry. I was so hurt. I had so much to prove. I was so focused on money and thinking that, you know, big business, Matt, that's going to take care of some of these hurts and pains and, and traumas. And you can build a business with that. Like you can build something big, not necessarily great, but but you can build something with that. And that only takes you so far that that really caught up with me. A few years into business because nobody wanted to work for me. Nobody wanted to stay there. I was an awful boss to work for. You worked for me. I'm the boss. You do what I say. You make me money or you don't work here. That's not what business is all about at all.
1: And you got to be the sort of boss that you didn't like to work for, which is why you decided Mm -hmm. to work for yourself.
0: Yeah, it was really it was really funny. So uh, I'm a very type A, very direct, very assertive. Um, you know, not too many people can tell me what to do. I just I, I just take charge. That's what I do, and uh, I power up a lot in the face of stress and adversity. Whether whether that was real or that was you know a put on facade, that's how I presented myself. So there weren't too many people that could really. Tell me how it was, and I was working with a business coach, and this guy was a big, big, just a big, physically big human, ex-military, no nonsense, no BS kind of guy. And he's like, Matt, you know, what are you struggling with today? I said, Well, I don't know why all these freaking people keep leaving me and what their problem is and why they're betraying me, and it's it's them, it's them, it's them. And he goes, he goes, Matt, cut the crap, shut your mouth, listen up. It's you, it's not them. Maybe nobody's ever told you this because they're scared of you, but I'm not scared of you, and don't you backtalk me. He was doing this with love, right? So totally fine. Um, He said, it's you, your leadership sucks. You're not good with people. You're angry. You need to get over the stuff that you need to get over. And if you don't do that, your business is not going to grow. I am a huge believer. And I speak on this a lot. Your business will only grow to the degree that you do personally. If you're not a business owner and you're listening to this and you're in a profession and you're working your way up the corporate ladder, you know if you're hitting a ceiling, the, the first thing you should look at is, is you and your story and why you're hitting it and take accountability for that. Um, I blamed the world for everything, Rodney, for everything that happened to me, such a victim.
1: As a man of faith, how do you mm-hmm. make sure that you're not chasing after the the great American dream of just more and more and more money? That making money is just part of what you do that that is a tool to be used by you rather than it controlling your life. We talk about being Christians it's
0: like what are you grabbing onto with so much might that you can't let go of it right? Like that's that's one of your idols. And, and money was for a long time. so I thought that you know more money meant more security, more stability. Um, and there's a lot of deep-rooted things neuropsychologically with me from my past to where that was all happening. But there is a real shift for me in business is that money profit, that's just a, a measurement of the degree that you serve people well with excellence. You know, I used to think business was, you know, marketing and it is right. Marketing, sales, delivery, collect money. You give a product or a service to somebody, they pay you. You're profitable. Profit first. Profit is the only thing that matters. You can't have a business if you're not profitable. Uh, it's like, well, hold on a minute. Who's who's doing all of all of this? It's it's people. And when I realized that business, it's just humans serving humans. And to the degree you serve them with excellence, there's there's a value exchange. You make money, but you also build relationships. But for me, as you know, when I went from being a boss to being a leader. I'm the leader of a company. I have a responsibility and a, and a duty, and, and I take this very seriously to contribute to the lives of other people that are spending 30, 40, 50, however many hours in, in the paint business. It's more than that in the summer. They're spending their life. They're dedicating themselves to what we've built, and I have a responsibility to take care of them financially, but then at the bigger level, you know, what, what is their journey? What's their story? Where have they come from? Um, I have a gentleman, he's now a full time pastor. He came to work for me after he was a four time felon. Being able to like be a part of his journey while we're making money doing business, it was such a greater achievement, accomplishment, contribution to the kingdom being able to contribute to his life that way. And that's what business is, is all about. So yeah, I love business. I'm good at business. It's, it's a gifting. The things I do is something the world needs. I love sharing stories and writing books. But you know what I want to leave behind, I'm really focusing now on on the legacy and what I want to leave behind for entrepreneurs and for the people that I'm called to serve.
1: Matt, we talked earlier about those Christians who didn't act in very Christian or compassionate ways to you, and you did mention that you had since run into that young guy who was 19 at the time (laughs) and could smell the alcohol on you. How did that coming together go?
0: So I'm at a Mexican restaurant with my wife. This is, gosh, six, seven years ago. I had been doing a lot of speaking in the business space. I've been speaking in the business space for a long time, but I just started speaking and just kind of started sharing my faith story uh, to men's groups, to small Bible studies, to a small team of pastors. So I'm getting ready to go speak this afternoon. Emily and I go have lunch and have a great lunch, pay the bill, get up. I look over my left shoulder and I'm like, is that, is that Brad? I go, is that Brad? And she looks over because you know we were dating. She goes, that is. And she knew him from other avenues. I go, should I go say hi to him? She's like, Matt, don't go say hi to him. And she goes, I don't think he liked you in college. I go, yeah, I really didn't like him either. I said, let's just, let's just go say hi to him. So we get up, I go up to the table. I go, hey, Brad, how you doing? And he looks up, he says, Matt. And he just, eyes get wide and didn't, didn't say like, hey, how are you doing? How's life? What's going on? He just said, what, what, what are you, you know, what are you up to? And I said, oh, well, my wife and I started M&D painting. Oh, you're the, you're the M&D guy. So immediate, like same guy that he was, you know, 20 years ago, you know, I said, well, what, are, what are you doing, Brad? And he was telling me his, his resume of his contribution to the kingdom of Christ basically. Right. And, um, so I played the business thing up a little bit. This is me. I'm a little facetious. I'm, I, I will, I will get like this. I'm just, you know, what? I'm, I'm, I'm just, I am, I'm just being honest. And I said, Yeah, Brad, I go, you know, we're growing, we're growing companies and I'm, I'm speaking, I'm getting ready to write a book. And he's like, Well, well, that's well, that's nice. It was really good to see you. And I said, I'm, I'm actually going to speak right now. And he's like, Oh, where are you speaking to? I said, I'm going to share with a group of pastors at my church my story about coming to Christ. <laughs> and he was, he was silent. <laughs> and I said, it's really, it's really good to see you, Brad. And uh Emily and I, Emily and I walked out. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm just, it's like, what, you know, what did, what did that, what did that guy think? You know, you asked a question earlier in the podcast, you know, you're, you're a believer and maybe you run into somebody that's, uh, you know, down in the dumps in the gutter, they're drunk. It's like, well, maybe they're not interested. It's like, yeah, maybe, maybe they really are. Maybe in 20 years, you're going to run into them and the, the impact you have, the way you show up, the things you say, maybe the hug you give them, the coffee you buy them, the handcuffs you put them in. And what you say to them in the back of a police car could be literally a turning point, not just for their life, but for their eternity. So my my challenge, encouragement to to listeners is just think about think about what that is. There's everybody's got somebody in their life that needs Jesus, that is in a really bad place when i share this story it helps me remind myself how i need to show up for people so um yeah I, I hope this just serves as an inspiration and an encouragement and you know if you can't find a connecting place with a family member or somebody they're under their drugs alcohol what what do we have in common just hey i love you i'm here for you if you ever need anything let me know want to go get a coffee want to go get a lunch give them a phone call shoot him a text message
1: matt we've touched on a number of things but mostly we've looked at your faith journey. There's a lot more to explore in the business world, in books that you've authored and all the rest. So if people want to find out a little bit more about this story, what's the easiest way for them to get in contact with you? Yeah,
0: the best way is mattshalp.com. So on my website, I've, I've got my bio, my story, my books. I take uh, business leaders from all over the world to Spain on leadership retreats. And uh, I've got some free resources there on my website that you can sign up for. And then that kind of starts a communication chain between us. And I'm, I'm pretty easy to, easy to find, just reach
1: out and uh, yeah, love connecting with people from all over the world. And I will put links to your website in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net. Matt, it's been a real joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and spending time with us on Bleeding Daylight. Thanks, Rodney. And uh, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bleeding
0: Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.